Welcome to Loud and Clear, a podcast dedicated to amplifying the voices of women in music. I'm your host, Olivia Adams, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Carolyn Joy, a university music librarian and researcher. Carolyn Joy is currently an associate librarian at the University of Saskatchewan Library, where she is a subject liaison for music, music education, and sociology. Her research is focused on music collections, inclusive collecting practices, music in place, and local music collecting. Carolyn is the primary investigator on the Shirk-supported project Sounds of Home, exploring local music collections and collecting practices in Canada. Welcome. I'm so excited to chat with you today. How are you doing? Good. Yeah, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So before we get into chatting about music and your research and publications, I was wondering if you could tell our audience a bit more about you and what led you down the path of becoming a musician. And then from there, how did you discover you wanted to be a music librarian? Mm -hmm. I mean, I come from a musical family. My mom was a music teacher, a piano teacher. So I don't know. I just grew up kind of with music in the house and taking piano lessons from a very young age. And it was always something that I did and that we did in my family. And it made sense to go to university and study music. And then when I was there, I went to UVic for my undergrad and I did a music history focus during my undergrad. Uh, My supervisor was Michelle Fillion. And she was amazing. And she kind of walked us through just her perspective on music research and how to use the library reference collections. And it kind of opened my eyes a little bit because I realized there was so much there that I just didn't even know how to use yet. But there seemed to be so much potential. And I was also teaching piano at the time locally and took a year off from school and then went back and did my music library degree at McGill after that. So it kind of all came together. I realized I was really interested in the music research side just as Mm -hmm. much as the music itself. And I think that's a time for a lot of people when you make some tough decisions, maybe about what direction you want to go in, whether it's more of a performance or a teaching focus or more of a research focus. So yeah, that's what I ended up doing. That's great. And you you touched on it perfectly led into my next question, which is as a librarian, you are very influential in helping advance research and you are involved in research because you are influential in helping students discover new research, carry out their own research. And part of what you do so well and why I wanted to talk with you today is you create these amazing library guides, which I have not been at the U of S for seven years, like a while. It's been a while since I've been there and I still use the library guides that you that you put out because they're just incredible resources. Can you tell us more about some of the research guides that you put out like on music and wellness and you put out a really great one and BIPOC Canadian musicians. Could you tell us more about those? Mm, Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, gone are the days where every library user is coming into the library and seeking help from someone at a reference desk. Like that's kind Mm -hmm. of a a way that we, you know, a more old-fashioned way, I guess, of thinking about how people use the library. And really now, I mean, it goes without saying that a lot of people are starting any kind of research process or learning about the library online. And so, you know, it makes so much sense to create help resources or library assistance resources, I guess, that that are online. And I mean, I think there's an element of accessibility there too, because really anyone can access them, even people who are not at the university. And I think that's wonderful. And you know, it allows me to kind of add some context to the collections that we have here. Mm-hmm. 
and give students or researchers a pathway through the library collections and the music literature. Yeah, so I have created some kind of subject-specific guides, and there's a few different reasons why that happens. Sometimes it's, you know, there's a course going on in the department, and I want to kind of supplement that coursework with a research guide. So that's where the music and well-being research guide kind of came from because Jennifer Lang, who is a faculty member in the music department, is doing research in that area. And uh, so that, yeah, that is a really interesting research area because it's so interdisciplinary and students mm-hmm. are looking at health sciences and psychology and sociology as well as music literature. So just to give some some grounding to that area of research. But yeah, I have you mentioned the uh, BIPOC composers libguide, and that's kind of grown out of more of a personal professional interest in mind in terms of d- diversifying the music collections and providing access to a better representation of composers for students. So I've been doing some work for a couple of years now, I'd say, on identifying Canadian composers who also happen to be Black or Indigenous or people of colour, and then looking at our collections here at the University of Saskatchewan Library and seeing what that representation looks like on our actual shelves and seeing what composers are there and who isn't there. And then ultimately, you know, trying to purchase scores or sound recordings to fill some of those gaps. And as you might expect, there are a lot of gaps for a variety of reasons. Anyway, some of the online resources that I can create to also help students find those materials because it's not Mm -hmm. always obvious just from looking at the library shelves or going into our library catalog what kind of lived experience a composer might have or not. And plus, there's lots of other amazing resources that other folks have Mm -hmm. created, right, that, you know, give biographies and highlight new music and all sorts of things coming out of historically marginalized communities in this country. Yeah, so it's just really to pull all of that information together and give students a starting place to learn more. Obviously, I can't tell them everything that they need to know. It's still, (laughs) it's like just a jumping off place. But I think what I've noticed is that students really are asking for more information around these topics and Mm -hmm. to supplement their performance repertoire with more diverse voices and local voices too. And Mm -hmm. this is one way that we can try and answer some of those questions for them or help them get started with their work in that area. The library guides, um, I know the the one at the the U of S and there's also several other library guides that I've used in my own research. It just provides this sort of structure in which we can can go from, like you said, it gives a jumping off point because sometimes you're like, I have this question that I want answered. I want to look into something and I don't know where to start. And sometimes Googling it, you're like, this is, this is not helpful. I have too many (laughs) responses or there's, it's not tailored enough. So checking out library guides and checking in with your local librarian is always a good place to start. You mentioned local voices. And I wondered if you could speak more to the Sask music collection that's taking place at the University of Saskatchewan. Yeah, for sure. This is actually a collection that I inherited when I started working here about 10 years ago. And actually Neil Richards, who used to work in the library and archives here. It was kind of like a personal project of his to collect local sound recordings. And then, you know, he actually donated the collection to the university and and now it's ended up here in the education and music library. So yeah, I would say that 
collection is primarily sound recordings, although we have some scores and books and supplementary materials. We have a great sheet music component of it as well, but I would say the bulk of it is sound recordings of all formats. And anyone with a connection to the province is represented in there. Lots of self-released albums in there for Mm -hmm. sure, Mm -hmm. as well as, you know, more famous people, Buffy St. Marie, Joni Mitchell, the Sheepdogs, and (laughs) (laughs) everything in between. And it's all genres too, which is kind of fun. So Mm -hmm. popular music, classical music, jazz, everything. And yeah, it gives you kind of a look at the province through this musical lens really capturing lots of the broad themes of like there's a huge country music love of country yes. music yeah. here <laughs> and um, but also Métis fiddle music mm-hmm. um, traditional indigenous powwow groups for example and classical music ensembles yeah it's just everything but you get that broad picture but you also get the diversity and the nuance of the communities which mm-hmm. is something that I think is really interesting as well not everybody is a famous musician but they kind of have their own story to tell through their music. And I think that's really unique. Like you can't replicate that anywhere else. I would agree. That's (laughs) great. I remember fondly working on the Sask Music Collection (laughs) and working in the archives and converting tapes and records onto digital archives. So I think it's a really important collection because it just shows this sort of shared history of local music. And I think that that's really special. (laughs) No, I was going to say, like, I forgot to mention, yeah, we have been doing this digitization project where people can listen to excerpts from some of the albums online. So that, again, is kind of broadening up the listening experience to people outside the university, which I think is super important. Yeah, that shared history of music is really fascinating. Like, people will find albums in there and they'll be like, oh, my music teacher, you know, is performing here. Or this, (laughs) I didn't realize these two musicians played together. So yeah, it paints an interesting picture of our shared heritage. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What are some of the decisions that you have to make about how and when to grow library collections? I'm curious if in your perspective, you think that librarians see trends in the research before we as the public see it? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, we're kind of beholden to the published materials for the most part. So that's really interesting to see what's happening out there in the research landscape. And one of the things that we've really noticed or and I've noticed recently in the past I don't know five years especially is the kind of interdisciplinary approach to research these days like Mm -hmm. you don't see so many standalone subject specific research projects anymore it really oftentimes is looking at how things are interconnected and that is so fascinating so those kind of overlapping lenses are coming out I think now in the research landscape as well you know and I would say in in terms of published material it generally comes out of things like journal articles before you see it coming into monographs, for example. Sure. But yeah, it's interesting because universities are really sometimes can appear to be kind of siloed because you have departments and each department mm-hmm. is dedicated to a particular area of study. But if you take a step back and look at the research activities, actually people are collaborating across the university. And that is one of the things that I just find so fascinating is the way that people connect on topics that 
seem to not be related. And actually, there's a lot there to explore. Certainly. And I think that also speaks to a rise in interdisciplinary research that's happening in in universities across Canada. The doctorate programs, even the one that I'm in, is only three years old as an interdisciplinary research in music program. But there are more of them popping up across Canada because that cross-departmental, cross-area research is really important right now. For sure. The other thing that I've been focusing on a fair bit recently is trying to look at library collections through a more inclusive lens. Sometimes it can seem at the beginning like, oh, how would you do that for music materials? Or how would you do that for, I don't know, collections in the sciences or health sciences? But, you know, the reality is, you know, we can look at at this in so many different ways. We can look at you know, who is publishing mm-hmm. research literature, which voices are being amplified or excluded, and how has that changed over time? Are there people who were ignored by academia previously that we actually need to make some space for them? And and we can use different metrics too to assess what things are valuable to library collections. It's not just mm-hmm. about who has published the most or has the widest audience, right? Because that doesn't tell the whole story. So yeah, this is definitely evolving, but it's something that I really care about a lot. And mm-hmm. that BIPOC composer's project is really just the tip of the iceberg. But, you know, I think people are surprised when they hear that, oh, there's composers out there who maybe haven't been included in collections. uh, Certainly. (laughs) As systematically as, as others. And yeah. But sometimes when you put, you know, if you actually present the data or, you know, look at the numbers, mm-hmm. you know, it's easier to visualize like, oh, the small percentage of the library collections are actually people of Black or Indigenous or people of color. And then they realize like, oh, this is like a very small footprint in the mm-hmm. library collections. So yeah, we're really looking at this from all angles now and trying to find various ways to make our collections more accessible, more representative of the wider community and, and to go back and look at materials with a critical lens as well and question, you know, what things did we take for granted in the past that maybe we need to unpack a bit more today. Mm -hmm. That's, that's great. And really important work. And also, I know the work that I also share a passion uh, with you in. I'm curious is in now when you're making decisions on how to grow the library collections and what you're going to add, is it often influenced by students and professors that are coming in and the work that they're doing? Or how do you come about making some of the decisions on what needs to be added and what voices need to be heard? Yeah, I think it's a multifaceted approach for sure. I mean, the main purpose of the collections is to support the teaching and learning that goes on at the university. So a lot of it is tied to what courses are being offered, what supplementary materials do students need in those classes. And then also what are the faculty research areas or in music, for example, their performance areas, that kind of thing. And yeah, I always take student requests or faculty requests if they need something. Most of the time I try and purchase those items or at least help people get them in some way. So yeah, I would say that is the bulk of the ordering is with that in mind. You know, the other piece is a little harder to get at, but it's kind of thinking about the collection as a whole and is it representative of, you know, the major trends in music research and that kind of thing. Yeah, I would say those are the main factors. Mm -hmm. Some of the work we're doing now 
more broadly in the library is how to get at those interdisciplinary areas and who's responsible for collecting them and what, (laughs) you know, yeah. And how do we address that? The other thing that's really come up a lot lately is formats, right? Because now everything Mm -hmm. is in digital formats and sometimes print formats. And so it's also about trying to understand which formats are going to make the most sense for our users, right? Because we have online music classes and there's people from all over the world taking those ones. And then we have in-person classes. And, and obviously you can't some, expect someone from another country to come to the physical library, get something off the shelf. So yeah, it's about balancing that access piece as well. And um, But it really is community driven and user driven for sure. Yeah. You mentioned access and I wonder if we could park on that for just a minute. I'm curious to see like our libraries are the digital resources in libraries, I should say, creating more access for people with um, different disabilities, like they can't get to a physical space or screen reader friendly materials. Uh, There's a big push for that now. And even um, just creating more audio resources for people who, who need those. I'm Are you seeing a lot of that shift? Yeah, it's interesting. We're really, you know, dependent on our, on the library vendors to create Mm. these platforms in an inclusive way. So, you know, when I have an ebook that I could potentially order, I can only pick from a handful of vendors usually. Right. And they each have their strengths and weaknesses. And some of them might have like a a screen reader option, or Mm. some of them might have an option to change the, the contrast of the Right. Yeah. Or the font size. Yeah. But not, not all of them necessarily do. So it's kind of a mixed bag. And I think that's where libraries have a more of an advocacy role to pass on information about what our users truly need Mm -hmm. uh, to those vendors. But we're talking about really big companies here. So, you know, I think it's, it can sometimes be tricky to be heard by those vendors and understand the significance of those, those platform changes, usability changes, I guess. There's so many variations to users' abilities and what they need from our collections that I would say some people really prefer a print option and some prefer online and it it's hard. There's not an overwhelming trend, I would say, especially in the humanities for one versus the other. Yeah. So it's hard to balance that. But I would say, you know, especially when it comes to publishers and the fees that they charge for online materials, it's going up and up and up mm-hmm. compared to the print options. So that's another level of consideration. You know, do we buy the one electronic copy of a book or do we buy three different titles in print? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's always at the end of the day, our ability to purchase is based on those budgets and yeah. financial constraints. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a tricky balance to maintain, I imagine. Yeah, it, I mean, it's it's obviously like we run into frustrations every year with, especially with t- textbooks. And I know students can relate to that too, but the prices just go up and up and there's new editions every year. And they're probably very similar to previous editions. And, yeah. you know, in some cases, libraries, in some cases, publishers won't actually sell their textbooks to libraries anymore because they, mm. they don't want us lending their materials when they could sell them to a whole class of students. So, you know, that's another area of advocacy. I think that we, you know, we need to send a message around that, that in an ideal world, I think, you know, libraries would be able to provide access to one or two copies for whatever reason. Yeah. I mean, there's so much potential with digital access and obviously you can reach a wider audience too Mm -hmm. for, for those types of materials. So I don't know, it's kind of, everything's (laughs) evolving and changing. We haven't really seen 
that complete shift to electronic books or online recordings or scores in the way that people thought that we would be throwing out all our print right. books. I mean, things have definitely changed, especially during COVID, right? Because the library was closed for quite a while and then it made it really hard for people to get their hands on physical materials. Yeah. Can we talk about that a little bit? I know so many librarians were forced to work from home. I know my university library closed. I'm curious, how did you see the pandemic change library spaces and the jobs of librarians? Mm -hmm. For quite a while, a lot of the libraries were closed. And I mean, for a short while our collections weren't really accessible, like our print collections right. weren't really accessible. So we were just mostly relying on the online materials. And then eventually we got to a system where we could, people could request print materials and pick them up from one location type of mm -hmm. situation. It, it was an opportunity in some ways to think about expanding some of our services for distributed learners. So we've always had a system where we would mail out materials to people who like to distance students. Mm -hmm. And we actually expanded that during COVID. So anyone could have things mailed to their house. And that, I think it was an easy thing to do, I guess, like we already mm -hmm. had a system in place and then we kind of expanded it. So yeah, that was one thing that we did. And something that I tried to focus on a bit more was creating online learning content. So mm -hmm. YouTube videos to help people with their research and questions and that kind of thing and how to use the library you know, because we weren't really teaching in person or we didn't really have the ability to have in-person consults and that kind of thing. I would say for even when we reopened our doors, it was pretty quiet in here. This last year has been kind of back to normal again, but there were about two years of students who had not been in the physical library mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. they missed that orientation opportunity to come in and see it for the first time. So they're already in their third year studies and they think of the library as just being online. So we've, we've introduced the library to some third and fourth year students for the first time, <laughs> like the, the physical library. And it's been yeah. really interesting to see them realize like, oh, there's this whole space here that that's open for me to use. Absolutely. I mean, the pandemic really, it shifted how we did research. When the pandemic hit, I was just about to start my archive research. And I relied on the kindness of librarians and music directors all over the country that scan things for me or mail, you know, giant boxes of books to me to be able to carry out that research. And I realized I mean, I had always known that the library was so important to what I do as a researcher, but I realized how much I rely on libraries and, and, and librarians and all that you do in helping us carry out research. Yeah, it was, it definitely changed the way that research happened for sure. I mean, especially again, like in the humanities where you're relying sometimes on primary sources or physical mm -hmm materials. And yeah, I, the library, you know, did a lot of scan requests for book chapters sure. and things <laughs> like that. We switched our reserve system completely online for the most mm -hmm. part. Yeah, things really changed. And even um, requests for materials, I would say in the humanities, often were mostly requests for print materials. And even that switched to people wanting online access to things. So yeah, I would say our electronic book collections probably grew quite a bit more during COVID just because it was faster. Yeah, certainly. And you've touched on it a little bit, but I wonder if we could expand on it some more. With the rise of digital resources, a lot of journals converting to online only access because of the cost of print, musicians playing from tablets rather than physical scores a lot more. Has this shifted the space in the mission of libraries? You know what? I don't think it has changed 
that mission of the library because we're really not thinking of ourselves as format specific or platform Mm -hmm. specific. It's Mm -hmm. just about kind of getting information resources into the hands of users and that's it. And whatever those information resources look like, we're going to shift and adjust. That piece really hasn't changed. I would say for music libraries, the shift from physical scores to digital scores has been a challenge and it's something that we're still Mm -hmm. working through, Mm -hmm. especially when composers increasingly are selling PDF copies of their compositions, but don't necessarily have a license in place for library lending. And a PDF doesn't come with the infrastructure that, you know, for users to see that through a password protected site or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. Um, So that, that piece has been interesting. And that piece has been more of a challenge. Same with sound recordings. Like, as you know, many artists Mm -hmm. are releasing (laughs) things on Bandcamp or Spotify or wherever it is on streaming platforms or YouTube. And all of those platforms exclude lending institutions that Mm -hmm. it's a single user license, right? So we can't necessarily buy, we can't provide access to those materials. And it's really tricky for us to, you know, download an album from Bandcamp and put it on our servers and share it that way. We don't really have the infrastructure to do that in a large scale way. So yeah, it will be interesting to see. I know a lot of libraries have really scaled back buying sound recordings because CDs are not being produced in the way that they were and the demand for them has gone way down. I don't know how many students have a CD player anymore. Um, I don't. (laughs) I don't have one. (laughs) Yeah, I think, you know, we're relying a lot more on streaming audio databases for libraries, but the Canadian content is not as strong a lot of times in those Mm -hmm. resources too. So it will be interesting to see things are shifting and they have to shift. And, you know, we're just kind of in these moments of transition. I was curious to ask that question because I know here in at the University of Ottawa, where I am, we closed our music library and it's now a section of the fine arts floor in the main library and you sort of reimagined the library space and how it can serve students differently but it is it is a little bit sad to not have a music library <laughs> and a place where you can go and find all of the scores really easily and yeah it's it's definitely shifted it's shifted the use of, of the library coming from when I came from a university that had a dedicated music library to a, a space that was shared among a lot of departments it's a uh, shifted the way I use the library. Mm-hmm, for sure. I think, yeah, and that's not the only place that that has happened in recent years. There are other mm-hmm. institutions that have moved to more of a shared space model. And I, you know, I think one of the things that's so valuable whenever these changes are taking place is the voices of students, the voices of library users going to the library and saying, you know, this is what I'm looking for here and, and sharing their opinions because that's who the library is for, right? Right. So yeah. yeah, it's it's something that is is happening for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, across the country in North America, these changes are taking place. I think if we're shifting more to online resources too, there are questions about library shelf space in particular and how much yeah. we need and that kind of thing. But I encourage students and library users to just really you know, share their opinions about those kinds of changes. Yeah, certainly. You're currently working on a project called Sounds of Home. And part of this is helping to preserve public memory and what home sounds like, the creation of the Canadian identity, all of these factors. Can you tell us more about what got you interested in carrying out the research and a bit more about what it entails? Sure. We talked a little bit about that Saskatchewan music collection earlier, and that really was kind of an entry point for me into this, this idea of local music collections. When 
when I would go to music library conferences, there are other music libraries that have similar collections or they're collecting local materials of different kinds and kind of encountering the same struggles with where do we house these materials? How do you decide what is local or what is not local? Mm -hmm. All sorts of things where people were asking these same questions and they ended up kind of doing a survey of music librarians to find out what challenges they're facing and how they're approaching that work. It hasn't really been documented that closely before. I had the opportunity during my sabbatical year to kind of expand the project a little bit and really focus in on the Canadian context and expand the types of collections too. So I ended up doing interviews with folks who are collecting local music in cultural heritage organizations, not just libraries, but museums and archives and community organizations. And to just ask them, you know, what their thoughts are about the value of these types of music and how they work in community, what supports they're looking for and what that music means to them. And so, I mean, you mentioned kind of like a collective understanding of, I can't remember your exact word. Public memory. Public memory. And I I think like my main takeaway is it's so diverse, right? Every community kind of has its own unique identity and it's hard to make generalizations sometimes about Mm-hmm. music in this country because it's so big and ge- geographically and there's lots of space in between towns and cities. Yeah, each of these collections really had so much to offer in terms of the individual voices that are in them. A few of the main takeaways, like one of them really is that a lot of people are very worried that we are losing this these heritage materials or that, right. that the general public isn't interested in them or that they're not getting funded enough. Like that mm-hmm. definitely came across time and time again. But then on the other hand, you kind of have like, you know, you often have like a dedicated user base that goes with the collections as well. And people are really passionate about preserving music in particular. Like it's very meaningful to people. It brings back memories. For some folks, it's tied to family history or community knowledge that's maybe been lost and they're hearing family recordings or community recordings. And that's bringing knowledge back to their lives that they thought was lost. So there's just a lot there. And I think the more people dig into the collections, these collections, the more they realize how unique they are and how much is there that is on the verge of being lost. I know that sounds dramatic, but a lot of these collections don't have necessarily published materials. They're archival materials. And Mm -hmm. so there's a precarity, I guess, around. And I would imagine that a lot of them are also related to family and inheritance and stuff like that. I know that I've talked with several musicians since moving to Ottawa and, you know, oh, have you heard of my father? He was a musician. And, you know, the family just brings in tons of music that belonged to their their father or their uncle who was a composer. And it's not always necessarily published. Mm-hmm. And it's just bequeathed to the family and they want some way of preserving it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that definitely holds true. You know, and that's part of the work, I think, of um, archives and especially, but these organizations think they often find themselves in a position where they're trying to advise musicians on how to Mm. store their musical materials in ways that will make them (laughs) able to archive it later or you know, hand it over to an institution. Yeah, there's some talk about DIY archiving, where it's really sharing that knowledge with the community so that they can make those decisions for themselves and then decide to turn materials over to an institution if they choose or not. Mm -hmm. And that comes through as well as this need to, you know, not keep all our professional secrets behind closed doors. There's really no (laughs) need to. Because I think for a lot of musicians, they just haven't thought really about that far into the future, like, oh, what's going to happen with these things so it just gets tossed in a basement or a closet Mm -hmm. and then and then they're not sure what to do with it 
Yeah. And it's really, I think you had mentioned before, like it's very closely, music is so closely tied to identity. People who are musicians really identify as such, whether or not they go into it professionally or not. And even talking with the grandchildren and children of composers and amateur composers and amateur musicians, you know, they're, oh, my father was a musician, you know, whether or not that was what he did for a living. Mm -hmm, For sure. And it's like part of a person's voice, right? And um, there's something really powerful about, you know, finding a score that hasn't been played in many, many years. And that's a kind of voice that can come to life again through a newer generation. Same with some of these sound recordings. I don't know, I'm thinking about Jeremy Dutcher and Mm -hmm. some of the sound recordings he he found in the archives, I think in Ottawa um, from his community. And people now have heard that probably all across the country, Mm -hmm. some of those snippets of those sound recordings but for him as a musician to be able to there's so much meaning there that I think was purposely kind of you know as a society we tried to rid of those or something and so there's something about music and the deeper kind of culture that goes along with it whether it's like a family culture or someone's personal identity or their broader community that is is unique and worth preserving and yeah people will connect with that for generations and generations I couldn't agree more well it's been a real pleasure getting to chat with you again we're gonna wrap up our chat with a few rapid fire questions I have been asking everyone on the podcast this season the same five questions but I actually wanted to ask you a few different questions questions because of your occupation as a librarian (laughs) to help us get to know libraries and librarians a little bit better. What's one thing you wish that musicians knew about their music library? We will help musicians try and find things that they think aren't possible to find. And you're very good at that. <laughs> we will do the dirty work of yeah. <laughs> trying to find those hard to reach materials. <laughs> why, in your opinion, and this is a big question, so I, I um, answer however you feel, but why do public libraries matter? Oh my gosh. You know, they're, they're free public spaces that anyone can use. They kind of are that third space, you know, you can go there and you don't even have to have a reason to go there. And that can be so important for so many people, you know, whether it's a place to warm up or to take your kids because you, you know, you don't have any other plans for the afternoon or, you know, you just want a quiet space to use the computer. So I think it is that idea of a a third space that's really important to preserve. I love it. What is a common misconception you think students have about their academic library? Uh, That you have to be quiet in them. Um, I don't know. I guess I should ask some students, but I think they probably <laughs> assume that you have to be really quiet and you're not allowed to bring your coffee in or something like that. When I was finishing up my undergrad at Western, we had a noisy section of the library and a quiet zone. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you could just pick and choose where you wanted to be. <laughs> yeah, there's something for everyone. <laughs> yeah. What is your favorite book to check out of a library? I, I think it's dangerous to ask librarians if they have a favorite book because we could. <laughs> um, one book I've really been enjoying is, um, it's actually a children's book by a local author. His name's Cody Dill. He wrote a children's book called Welcome to the Cypher. And it's kind of, he's a hip hop artist as well as an educator, but it's all about like 
the power of hip hop to kind of amplify children's voices and their unique experiences. And it's really beautiful. That's great. I have behind me, I have, this is full of picture books for my students. So and all about music picture books. So I am going to look that one up and probably add that to my collection. Thank you for that recommendation. (laughs) What are you listening to right now? Oh my gosh. What am I listening to right now? I have been listening to a lot of Tribe Called Red right now. I don't know if you know that. Just, you know, (laughs) sometimes if I need some extra energy in the morning, that's kind of a go-to. Also, Lizzo has been... (laughs) Lizzo keeps coming back as a favorite. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. Well, thank you so much for coming on Loud and Clear. Do you mind letting our audience know where they can find you as a librarian? And I'll have links to all of the things that we talked about in the show notes. For sure. Yeah, I can. you can find me through the library website if you just search my name, library.usask.ca. And no one else has my name here, so you'll find (laughs) me right away. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. Well, thank you again for coming on and talking all about libraries with me. I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much. And that is a wrap on our episode for this week. Thank you so much to Carolyn Joy for coming on and talking all about music libraries. I really enjoyed having that conversation with her and getting to nerd out a little bit about research practices and library spaces. Be sure to give us a five-star rating and written review on whatever platform you listen to. I'm so grateful for your support. As always, thank you so much to the Saskatoon Symphony Orchestra and their team for supporting this podcast, be sure to head over to saskatoonsymphony.org for more information about upcoming concerts. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you next week.